0: Good morning again um so thank you to all of you uh engaging on the text line yes Lori, we're praying with you for your friend um who had a massive heart attack yesterday and for his wife and their four kids uh joe yes uh i am with you that we should have more conversations about forgiveness and and fairness and the interplay between those topics uh yes susan um Uh, yes, praying uh, with you and thankful for those who've given commencement speeches that are faithful to the Lord. And Scott, yes, we are with you, confused when people describe themselves simultaneously um, with sexual descriptive terms and yet then as non-binary. These days in which we live are confusing. Thank you for all of the engagement that you guys provide during the show. If you're thinking to yourself, gosh, I've always wanted to ask Carmen a question or Wonder, uh, wonder about something. The text line is a great place to do that. You can text me during the show at 877-933-2484. Um, you can also always email me, carmen at myfaithradio.com. Dr. Linda Mental and I are going to talk about taking charge of catastrophic thinking, um, but we are also going to talk about why Starbucks won't let us call lattes skinny anymore. So there you go. Uh, I have all kinds of questions for her. So we're going to get to that conversation Right away, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and when we come back, Dr. Linda Mental will join me. You can listen to her on a regular basis on the Dr. Linda Mental Show here on the Faith Radio Network, uh, but you can also find her online at drlindamintel.com. We'll be right back.
2: This is my fight.
0: Linda, welcome back. Oh, hi, Carmen. Okay, I, oh, yes. I just literally, I couldn't wait any longer to get to you. So uh, Dr. Linda Mental joins me today, the Dr. Linda Mental Show, one you should always be listening to here on the Faith Radio Network, uh, but you can also sorry. read what she's writing at DrLindaMental.com. Okay, what happened at Starbucks? I mean, oh, what ha- Sorry, what happened at the coffee dispensary, which you visited earlier today?
3: There you go. There you go. Um, Yeah. So every morning I typically I drive through my favorite coffee establishment. Right. And order. I've been ordering for years. Grande skinny vanilla latte. It's kind of my go to drink. Right. So this morning I go through and the the woman who was on the intercom says to me, "Uh, we don't order that anymore. That is not the name that we are allowed to use. And I said, "Okay, what would be the name that we're supposed to use? And Honestly, it was so complicated, I don't even remember. It was like you had to describe the drink. It was like uh, hot coffee with milk with sugar-free vanilla syrup, you know, so I was describing it. So I get to the window and I said, okay, you got to explain this to me because I'm really not understanding. And she said, well, skinny is not inclusive of everybody. So this organization, this company has decided we can no longer use non-exclusionary terms um, you know, that are not things that are not inclusive now to the whole population. And I said to her, I said, you know, I, I work with eating disorders and I have never in all my years associated my coffee and the description of my coffee with weight. It's just not something, I just don't like the taste of sugar. So that was my thing. But, and she leaned over and she said, I'm probably not allowed to tell you this, but I agree with you. Right. Okay. So here would
0: be see now, see, I would have might have held up the line a little longer because I would have to say, Well, what about when somebody orders a tall?
3: Right. Right. That or a, a
0: grande. That yeah. Right? Not controversial. How about vanilla? Is vanilla not controversial? That feels right. controversial. Right. And the and only remember... part of your drink that's not controversial is that you ordered a latte. Right. Although you know what? That's you know, and <laughs> if you're not using if you're not using um Coconut milk or almond milk, then you're probably doing something wrong there as well. I don't know. Can you order non fat milk? Like can you even say non fat milk? Well, I don't know. I had to say, I mean say you're something. using the word fat. If you use the word fat, if you're not allowed right, to use the word skinny, yeah. my guess is you can't use the word fat. Right. I'm gonna so order a full fat, it? full sugar and see what happens. I want a full fat, full sugar. <laughs> like right? Whole milk. I don't know. That sounds crazy. Okay, it's bananas. Okay.
3: Well, you know, um, I have you, I have to tell you the funny one. I was standing in the line one time, and somebody said, "I want a tall blonde." You know, because you can order that.
0: <laughs> I was just looking at the. I don't I think said. you can order that. That doesn't sound <laughs> legit. You can't order that. That sounds right. totally not legit.
3: I know. We're going to have to describe everything that we want from now on in paragraphs in order this to. This is going to be the
0: best time. radio segment ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> here's the. Here's here's what I have for you. I um I am a. Grande, non nonfat uh, <laughs> vanilla latte, but I've never ordered a skinny one because I don't like that sugar-free syrup. Like, I know. I think it's bad I lose for bad you. But... Well, no, yeah, I, it's, it's,
2: an, it's a bad aftertaste. Well, no, it's a
0: taste issue for me. I know. So I'm, de- yeah, there you go. Um, all right. So now you all know um, our preferred drink orders here. <clears throat> um, and so Linda, let's talk about taking, what is catastrophic thinking and how can I take charge of it?
3: Well, for instance, if you went and ordered that drink, let's just make the segue here, (laughs) and uh, the person got upset with you, and you started thinking, oh my gosh, my whole day is ruined, I've done something terribly wrong, what's wrong with Uh me, I'm a really bad, now let's just say I didn't go there, but let's say you did, then you would be somebody who had uh, a tendency towards what we call catastrophic thinking, and it's just where you easily, easily jump to very negative conclusions, Um, you think something terrible is going to happen, And it really is, though, Carmen, based on the fact that maybe some people have had a lot of uncertainty. And look at the year we went through. I mean, it's it's just based in uncertainty, unpredictability. And so people became very anxious, very worried. And people have a tendency when something bad happens then to start maybe going into this type of thinking where they think everything's going to go bad or one thing means you know, they're going to, something terrible is going to happen to them and they, they could really be in trouble. So you really want to guard against that type of thinking. The reason people sometimes do it though, is they think, and I've heard patients tell me this, well, if I think catastrophically, if I think like the worst possible case scenario, then whatever happens, I'll be prepared for it. But it doesn't usually turn out that way. They just feel terrible either way. So it doesn't work. So what does work? Well, you have to get a hold of those thoughts, and and I I really uh, know that a lot of people listening there there are people listening who are thinking I I do that I really I get really anxious about this. If you continue to have this type of thinking, it can lead to depression.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: I, one of the things we know about pain is if you have a lot of chronic pain and you have this type of thinking, this type of thinking will actually make your pain worse. So there are health effects even with this type of thinking. So you really want to make sure that you're trying to calm yourself down. And actually, the Bible has a prescription for this when it talks about taking thoughts captive. Mm -hmm. And so you understand that this type of thinking is really based on a certain level of distortion. I mean, if you go out in the, you know, you drive your car today, you could get hit by another car. But that's a distortion, because the chances of that happening are very low. And it's not something we want to you know, take into our mind as something to be fearful of, so fear is at the root of this too. fear, worry, and anxiety, which are things the Bible talks very specifically about. so if you just monitor your thoughts and then you try to say, "Okay, this is a catastrophic thought. I'm going to the extreme here. I need to grab it, take it captive, look at it, and then replace it with something that's just much more reasonable that's not so magnified to a to a you know to a very extreme." outcome. And then think about, you know, over time, how do you deal with uncertainty? And maybe that's where you need to deepen your relationship with the Lord, and start thinking about, you know, the fact that God is always with you, he's going to help you, he's going to walk you through things, he's ordering your steps, and there's so much we can't control anyway, that worry never takes us anywhere but a bad place.
0: Um, A catastrophizer. I think you made that word up, but it's in your I article. Didn't. So
3: no, no, that's a big thing. That's a big thing in the psychological really? literature. Yeah, yeah. It's a and there's a there's a whole therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy that looks at your catastrophic thoughts and helps you write them down and then you look hmm. at them and you make them more reasonable. You look at it and you go, This is really an extreme thought. What would be a more reasonable? And you learn to replace that thought with something a lot more reasonable so that you're not doing that catastrophic thinking. But it really is one of the things that pushes people into depression when they have that type of thinking. So you have to get a hold of it.
0: Yeah. So when we come back, um, um, I want st- to start at, because we've talked briefly about the first two things on the list, which is understand this type of thinking is based on cognitive distortions and then monitor your thoughts, which is, a, you know, sort of gets that take every thought captive. But when we come back from a very brief break, let's pick up at number three on the list. Um, tell your mind to stop, um, because I really love number four, which is what would you say to a friend who is having thoughts like this? So these are all so great. All right. I'm talking with Dr. Linda Mental. We're talking about a piece that she has posted um, right now at drlindamental.com. It is uh, on taking charge of catastrophic thinking. We'll be right back.
2: What if I were to tell you?
0: Wow, lots of uh, lots of coffee engagement um, on the text line this morning. And uh, let me just say to Reverend Dr. Castro, yeah, I'm not even reading your Starbucks order because it's making me blush. Okay, because, you know, you could order something with no whip or upside down. I mean, it just starts getting terrible very quickly anyway. I know. Right. I know. That's true. Okay.
3: Your, your producer and I were talking during the break about it, even, and some of the things that have been, have been <laughs> said, uh, and we were, you know, finding all kinds of problems with the, the language. <laughs> all right, I'm talking to Dr. Linda Mental.
0: We're actually not talking about coffee. <clears throat> we're talking about catastrophic thinking. So you could go to drlindamental.com and you can um, you can join us in reading this just most excellent piece, "How to Take Charge of Catastrophic Thinking." Okay, Linda, we started with understanding that, you know, there's a, we're thinking of a, in a distorted way here, and then mm-hmm. monitoring your thoughts, taking every thought captive. And then you say, tell your mind to stop. Like, this is a part of that taking it captive as well. Like, I actually visualize Jesus, like, taking a thought captive, like, seizing it um, when yeah. I can't. Yeah, it, do you have other, you know, sort of tricks of the trade related to that?
3: Yeah, a lot of times I'll I'll tell people, you know, your mind has thoughts that come and go in it. It's, if you think mm-hmm. of it like your computer, right, there's a lot of spam that comes over your computer. And you have to decide to click on a thought or a, a spam thing or and open it up or else you can just notice it there and you can leave it sitting there. So a lot of times thoughts are like that. They're only thoughts. So how much you open them up and click on them is really important. If you do start to think of something that's in a more magnified way or an extreme way or what we're calling catastrophic thinking, and you do open up that thought, then you need to think of, I just think of like a cage with a lion in it. It's captive Um, or somebody in prison is captive. They they can't roam around. They can't wander into a, a different place. And so part of what you're trying to do with your mind is you're trying to say, I don't want those thoughts to wander into worried waters. I actually talk about this a lot in my book, Letting Go of Worry, where you're taking those those thoughts and you're, you're acknowledging them. You're not trying to suppress them. So one of the things I want to tell the listeners is when you're anxious and you're having anxious thoughts and you go, don't think about that. Don't think about that. Oh, I, I've got to push that thought away. That just makes the thought worse. Um, We have a little saying in therapy where we say what you resist will persist because the more you try to push back at that thought, it's going to it's going to come forward. So you just want to acknowledge it. You want to think of it like a a wave on an ocean. It's coming in and it can go out. And when it's coming in and if you tend to stick on it, you know, you think I'm going to think about this thought, then you need to look at it. You need to confine it so it doesn't go into worried waters. And that's where you need to replace it with something that's more reasonable. A lot of times scripture can help you with that, Carmen, because if you're worried about, you know, being rejected or you're worried about something terrible happening to you, you can insert a scripture in there that will renew your mind. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much talk in the Bible about renewing your mind, because our mind tends to go negative very quickly because we're always scanning for threats in our environment. So we have to be very conscious of taking our thoughts captive.
0: There's a there's probably some training here in terms of the next generation. I um we had a <clears throat> we had a big weekend. It was graduation weekend. So we had lots of generations of people together at uh at one event on Saturday and my 7-year-old granddaughter at one point was sitting in the dining room with a big scowl on her face and you know she pick it, picking around at a plate of food and I'm like, you know, why are you in here by yourself and what's going on? And you know, she was clearly just in a mood and uh she was letting negative thoughts control, you know, how much fun she was, like, willing to let herself have at this event. And, and I think in large measure it was because, you know, the event wasn't about her. Um, and so even, even getting far enough out of ourselves to be able to say, I can choose a different way to think about this, or I can choose a different way to feel about this. Like, in this moment, I have the power to choose how, what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, and then how I'm going to behave.
3: Right. And, and, you know, it's what's kind of frightening about our culture right now is that there are so many negative thoughts that are constantly being sort of spewed into the culture. So if you're on social media, it's not it's not typical to have a lot of positive going on in some of those uh, mm. platforms. It's mostly that, you know, nasty things that people say to each other and the way that people bully on, you know, line and all kinds of things. It's very easy to allow yourself to be taken in by those thoughts, which is why you have to guard against it. You have to guard your heart. You have to guard your mind. And so guarding your mind and saying to yourself, I am not going to think on those things. You know, this is exactly what Philippians talks about. Think on these things think on these more positive things rather than the negative things. And there's so many, there's so much research on the, on just thinking about gratitude, waking up in the morning and having a positive thought about what someone has done for you or what God has done for you. I was reading a, a thing and I think it was Google it was some company where they made one intervention where they decided to every day send a positive text or email to someone in the company And the company started having much more creativity, positivity going on, optimism. All of this is affected. So the way our mind thinks is very important. And we have to learn to recognize those thoughts and then make, like you said, make a choice to say, I'm going to stop that thinking. I'm going to replace it with something that's much more positive because your thoughts affect your mood and then your mood affects your behavior and then your behavior you know, affects the way you see the world. So it's all connected together.
0: It's, it is indeed all connected together. And um, I love the way you help us think about that. So I want to move back just momentarily to uh, the coffee conversation, but a little bit differently. So okay. I have a, I have a friend in her mid-50s, and let's just say she's feeling a little fluffy. That might be my best description of the way she's physically feeling. <laughs> And and okay. over the weekend, several people, like, instead of telling her that, you know, she looks nice or that's a cute outfit, they said, well, you look really healthy. Is that the new language for the nice way to to say something to somebody when we really think they're not looking very healthy? Is that the lingo?
3: It's it's hard to know what to say. I mean, I think a lot of... <laughs> you know, maybe we're not going to say anything to each other because we're going to be so worried that we're going to offend. What? One of the things that's difficult about these conversations is you don't know what you don't know. You don't know right. what will offend somebody now when you say a word. I mean, I've been caught in that now with this, you know, new way we're supposed to talk to everybody. And people have told me things and I've said, I would have never thought of that. Like I It wouldn't have even come into my mind that that association somewhere 50 years ago had something to do with somebody that somebody knew this remote detail and now it's a problem. You know, so, you know, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to do? Just trying to say something positive to somebody, look at them, smile and accept the compliment and then move on. Amen.
0: Don't yeah. Linda as yeah. always, thank you so much. Let's get together for a cup of coffee soon. That is Dr. Linda Mental. You can listen to her on the Dr. Linda Mental show here on the Faith Radio Network. You can find her at drlindamental.com. We'll be right back. All right, if you're from Emmett, Idaho or anywhere like it, you're going to love the next conversation. We're talking with Grace Olmstead about her new book, Uprooted. We'll be right back.
1: Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. This is Max Licato. Of all the ironies, Martha was in the presence of the Prince of Peace, yet she was the picture of stress. Martha's downfall was not her work or request; it was her motivation. It doesn't seem to me that she was making a meal for Jesus. She was really trying to make a big deal about her service. Might there be a bit of Martha within us? And what begins as a desire to serve Christ metastasizes into an act of impressing people. And gifted Marthas become miserable mumblers. Yet that Martha within is not easily silenced. Mark it down. When ministry becomes vain ambition, nothing good happens. And Jesus does not get served. No wonder the Apostle Paul was so insistent, and he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is Max Locato, and this is How Happiness Happens.
0: What fun to have joining us today, Grace Almstead. Uh, She is an author. She's also a wife and a mom. She lives in Washington, D.C. The book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Grace, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. So take us to Emmett, Idaho.
2: Emmett, Idaho is a farm town. It is in rural Idaho near the Snake River and Boise, the capital And for the last couple hundred years, it's been a farm town. It's been agriculturally based, a hub for fruit orchards and crop farming and a variety of dairies and ranches. But over the last several decades, probably especially since the 1970s and 80s, a lot of those operations have gone away. And a lot of the agribusinesses and forms of support and community that existed in that town have also disappeared. Now, the reason I care about Emmett is because my great-great-grandfather and grandmother on both sides of my family homesteaded there back in the turn of the century. And they've lived there for multiple generations up until my grandpa Wally And they farmed there for generations. And so I have these deep ties to Emmett as well.
0: But you don't live in Emmett, Idaho anymore. Um, Much of the conversation in Uprooted, um, you know, just tends to that reality. You talk about two kinds of people. What are the two kinds of people related to Emmett, Idaho?
2: Wallace Stegner was this Pulitzer Prize winning author and uh, essayist who suggested that in America, there are two types of people what he called the boomers and the stickers, and that they have, in his words, torn apart and rebuilt American communities over the course of our nation's history. He suggested that boomers are those who go in and extract value from a place and then leave it behind when the boom goes best, Um, or perhaps those who work for uh, those who are exploiting the resources, those who don't have the capital, social or financial capital, to really invest in that community. But the stickers, in his words, settle down and make that place an actual place. They invest their time, their money, their heart and soul into making that place a flourishing community. And they stay there even when things are difficult. And so he suggested that we need more stickers in America, but we have a whole lot of boomers. And I myself left Idaho for college settled on the East Coast. Uh, my husband was in the Air Force stationed outside Washington, D.C., and I haven't returned home, but I've often grappled in my life with this question of whether I'm living more like a boomer or more like a sticker.
0: So I resonate with um, so much of, uh, I mean, even just the way the introduction of, uh, of Uprooted begins. Um, I have stood in a similar familiar graveyard um, with my husband and And his kids, and had conversations about who these people were and where we're standing um, in very rural northern Indiana, um, where we don't live, and where the life that is lived is very different than the life that we live um, in greater Nashville. Certainly different than life that many of our listeners are living in, let's say, the Twin Cities. But we also have a lot of folks listening right now in communities like Emmett, Idaho. And the relationship between um, those who who are there long-term, generation to generation, and those who, for all kinds of reasons, um, are not there anymore, I feel like a part of this conversation is about the relationships between those
2: two groups of people. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. And about the ways in which oftentimes we, as you say, have to move for various reasons, but maybe have these feelings that keep drawing us back homeward. Uh, We oftentimes, I think, call it nostalgia, right? When we miss our homelands for some reason. And nostalgia can have a bad name. People um, rightly accuse some of using nostalgia to view their homelands in too, um, too positive of a light, not seeing all of their brokenness or their needs clearly. But I think the beautiful thing about nostalgia is oftentimes it shows us the best parts of our childhood or our growing up years or the places we're from, and it can draw us to ask ourselves, what are the things about that past that I would love to carry forward and make sure that my children or grandchildren get to benefit from? Um, But I think that the people who stay in a community can often feel unheard or unseen by the larger world, especially in rural areas where there has been a lot of extraction and a lot of exodus. They don't feel seen or heard in the larger national conversations. And oftentimes a lot of voices in the media, including mine are um, in these media hubs which exist along coastlines or in major cities. And so I think there's much work that could be done to connect the two populations in various ways to allow them to learn from each other for those who are homesick, to maybe ask themselves, what are the things I'm homesick for? And how can I make sure that even in a new place, I'm carrying forward some of those good traditions and memories?
0: Okay, so I like that a lot. I like the invitation to reconnect, to reroute, to cultivate. Um, I love the way that you use um, farming imagery and language, both literally and metaphorically, I really appreciate the way you dig around in the very contemporary modern issues of survival versus thriving for farms, for family farms, and for farming communities. Um, So let's take a very brief break. When we come back, will you talk a little bit about the realities of farming today? Um, Because I feel like this is a sweet spot of conversation for you and one that actually might surprise our listeners in terms of your depth of knowledge. Mm. Will Will that work? For sure. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Okay. I'm talking with Grace Olmstead. The book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. We'll be right back. Welcome to the first church of mercy Where the doors of love swing open wide Continuing my conversation with author Grace Olmstead. The book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Um, Grace, one of the things that you, uh, you know, that you, dig around in that you till the soil of here um, in Uprooted is a conversation about the realities of farming today. Um, Why is it that towns are not just having a hard time surviving, but certainly having a hard time thriving?
2: Well, a lot of rural towns existed as part of a local and regional farm economy. They were full of agribusinesses and people who were working in the agricultural and the food industry. And they were helping the farmers in their communities get their product to market. So in the case of Emmett, there was a very strong hub there for uh, the local fruit production. So there were packing sheds. There was a lot of shipping that they were doing out of Emmett itself. There was a cannery so that things could be turned into canned goods or preserved goods uh, and then sold as value-added pieces of agricultural produce, there was a lot that was done in the realm of having frozen food sheds and things like that. And so what you saw in Emmett was this thriving, bustling, small town economy. But over the last several decades, what we've seen is that the agricultural industry as a whole has severely concentrated and it's gone national and global in a lot of different sectors. So, for instance, in the realm of seed production or um, seed sales, Monsanto, which is a name that a lot of people will recognize because they sell a lot of the corn seed throughout the United States, Monsanto has actually merged into Bayer, which is a global company, and it's now one of four um, seed companies that control pretty much all of the seed production and sales throughout the world. Um, You see similar things happening in uh, the meat industry. Smithfield and Tyson are the big names in those industries and, and on down the list. But what that does at the local level is it means that there are no longer those local hubs that allow farmers to work with their neighbors, that create local jobs, that help people get their product to market with um, kind of more of an even distribution of costs. And so there's a lot that's happened there to mean that Emmett has emptied out. It's emptied out of jobs. It's lost a lot of young people because they can't get work locally. And a lot of the farmers who still exist there, which is a waiting number, increasingly feel like their costs are constantly going up as they try to get their product to market. And the profit margins are slim to none.
0: Conversations uh, about meat, about produce, about seeds. I feel like now this might locate me, this might socially locate me pretty quickly. I feel like those are conversations um, we don't just have around the dinner table. We have frequently with neighbors, with friends, with uh, folks across the country. And we happen to be those people who are privileged to have a little orchard and a little garden um, and raise, you know, three head of beef cattle each year so that we can divide it up among our six kids and ourselves. So I feel like so privileged, right, to be Mm -hmm. rooted Um, And to be cultivating and to have kids who understand that when it's time to pick the peaches, everything else has to be set aside because they have to be picked and they have to be processed if we're going to have peaches, um, you know, over the winter. Like I I get this at a personal level, but I think a lot of people, an, an amazingly alarmingly large percentage of the population is completely disconnected from the sources of food today.
2: It's so true. I think it's less than 2%. It could be even less than 1% of the nation's population still works on a farm at this point, or is a farmer by uh, any definition of the term. And and our connections to farms and rural land have really waned as agriculture has consolidated, just because as there's less population working these farms... The opportunities to network with them, to get to know them, to even step foot on a farm, Wayne, as well. And I think what you're pointing out so beautifully is that there's a sense of belonging, of stewardship, of even just having a greater sense of identity in place that comes from knowing a farmer, having your own fruit trees, or doing some sort of um, work that gives you a tangible sense of connection to local soil. But modern Americans oftentimes don't get that. And those who do often, as you point out, are are wealthy enough in some way, shape or form to be able to do that, either in the form of having land at their disposal or the ability to shop at farmer's markets where the produce and other goods are oftentimes just a lot more expensive than that which we get from the grocery store. And I think there's a lot of interesting reasons for this. Uh, for instance, subsidies toward corn and soybeans oftentimes drive down the price of certain cheap junk foods that we purchase and drive up the cost of fresher goods. It's also true that the organic market, for instance, could still see a lot of growth before supply begins to meet demand. And that difference between supply and demand at this point means that those goods are oftentimes more expensive. So I think there's a lot we could do and seek to converse about in terms of making local food more accessible and helping people of all different income levels be able to have access to and relationships with their local farmers. So I know that um,
0: like Princeton Seminary now has a farm program. And I know that there are lots of churches across the country that are developing, you know, like community gardens out of unused land or ball fields that used to have kids on them and don't now. I'm interested to know, are do you here? Are you in touch with like, is there any effort to reinvigorate like vocational ag in high schools across the country? Um, Do you see efforts in in terms of revitalizing? Like you talked about, there were canneries. I remember those, but I don't know of any local communities that still have like community canneries. Are you seeing any of that?
2: Some, and I think it's very interesting to see how the pandemic last year, for all its incredible tragedies and difficulties, was really a wake-up call in terms of our food system for a lot of people. Um, You had, for instance, a lot of slaughterhouses closed down, and many of those slaughterhouses served farmers for miles around, for states around, and their ability to then get their product to market was completely cut off. And so a lot of hogs, for instance, were euthanized last year because they could not be um, moved to a slaughterhouse and it was more expensive for the farmer to try and keep them up than to kill them which in my mind is also an issue of Um, how our humanity intersects with our food system. But in response to a lot of those issues, we saw local and regional efforts at building back in slaughterhouses. Um, You saw people opening and starting to run their own local flour mills, Um, just different places and spaces in which people said, we need more diversity in our food system to strengthen it, make it more resilient and less brittle, and to help people have greater access to their food sources In terms of schools, I know um, Lisa held on her podcast, The Farm Report, has talked to um, inner city school initiatives aimed around aquaponics and other food systems that you can actually do within urban centers to help very food insecure have greater and to be educating those young people how to prepare and eat a lot of things that are very hard to come by in their neighborhoods like that are really amazing uh as well.
0: I'm um, I'm remembering a conversation we had here um about uh Hope Farm School which is uh which is an effort to actually get kids out into an ag environment and teach them the whole warp and woof of uh of farm life and I'm appreciating models emerging like that. Um, in locations across the country and, you know, want to be celebrating those things. Um, All right. I want to just lift up um, one name here at the end of the conversation and let you uh, reflect for just a moment. The name is Wendell Berry.
2: Wendell Berry is an incredible farmer, poet, essayist, novelist, you name it. (laughs) He's probably written it, Um, who grew up in rural Kentucky and left home to go to school in Um, I think he went to the University of Kentucky, but then went from there. He had a Guggenheim Fellowship, went to Italy, ended up teaching at New York University in the middle of one of the largest cities in the nation, and then felt this call homeward and left it all behind to move back to rural Kentucky with his wife and kids and has continued to write there and to serve that community for the rest of his life. I had the great privilege of getting to do some male correspondence with him. I'm just sporadic, but uh, letters back and forth. I got to do a couple interviews with him for the New York Times and the American Conservative. And those conversations really planted the seeds, so to speak, that this book then blossomed from. And as I talked to him about farming, he urged me that if I were going to write about it, I should write about it from the perspective of my family and my own as a member of that family. And so that's what I sought to do with this book and with its message. But when I read a lot of his work as a young person just graduated from college, it's really what made me homesick in a new way for the first time. It wasn't like I was just eager to get home for the next visit, but he made me question how being an Idahoan made me who I am being a member of my family, the Howard family, had influenced my loves, my passions, the traditions that I tried to institute with my own kids. And all of those questions really then drew me to this larger question and idea of what might I owe to the past and to place. And so this book is an attempt to look at that, to look at all of the different things that were planted in my home soil that made it flourish and made it beautiful and made my own growing up here special And then to ask, what can I now do to carry forward some of those blessings to the next generation? Whether I return or or stay here in Northern Virginia, how can I keep up that work and back as my ancestors gave of their lives to bless me?
0: Um, I love it. The book is a delight, um, as are you, Grace. Uh, The book is Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Grace Olmstead is the author You can follow her on Twitter at Gracie, with a Y, Olmstead. Grace, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank
2: you so much, it's been a delight. We'll be right back.
0: All right, testimonies from listeners across the country. Uh, Listener in Wisconsin talking about their ancestors having moved from Germany uh, for land in Wisconsin. Promising to work and farm the land. Amen. Jim from Simsbury, Connecticut, reminding me of the milkman. We have copies of Grace Olmstead's Uprooted to give away. Um, so go ahead and text the word book to 877 933 2484 to enter that drawing from our friends over at uh, Random House Penguin Press. Again, if you want to enter the drawing for the copies of Uprooted we have to give away today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. I think this is a great book for conversations, um, not only uh, you know in our families, but in our churches as well. There are tons of opportunities for using the land, where we are, the land around our churches, all that green space um, for cultivating the next generation. And so let's think about how we um, might Reinvest uh, how we might till the soil, the literal soil and the figurative soil around us for a harvest of righteousness unto the Lord. You know, gathering people around tables of fellowship, uh, helping kids get their hands down in the dirt. You can go back and listen to the podcast of the conversation we had about Hope Farm School. Um, You can I mean, there's just all kinds of opportunities to engage in this conversation, so let's not miss them, right? All right. So, uh, thank you again to Paul Perot for all of his uh, wonderful work as the producer of this program. We will join you. I know, (laughs) yours is so great. We will join you right back here tomorrow. If you've missed an episode or want to share this one with someone else, go to MyFaithRadio.com, get the podcast. You can also share the podcast directly from the Faith Radio app. Again, we're giving away copies of Grace Olmsted's Uprooted Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.